in the next couple of weeks, in the run-up to Christmas, we're going to be looking in Luke chapter 1, and we're going to open up this morning by the first four verses of that. I love these first four verses. They will help us ground what is to come. Hopefully this morning they will give us a greater understanding of what is written, why it's written, who it's written to. But ultimately the point this morning, and the point of Luke and his writing to Theophilus here, is that we may know certainty. So we'll read the first four verses. The dedication to Theophilus. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the world have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Let's pray. Lord, come and still our hearts. Lord, would your word speak to each and every one of us this morning? Would we know something of the certainty that we have in your word and the certainty that we can know in Christ? Amen. Foundations. Foundations are incredibly important. We know that if foundations fall, we'll end up with a building that looks something a little bit like this. When the next picture comes. If foundation erodes, there is nothing that supports a building. And we know that the ground then, the ground alone is not enough to support a house. These first four verses of Luke are worth looking at because they are the foundation of everything that is going to come in this book. And in fact, much greater than that, they explain the reason that we can trust and be certain in the message of the Bible. There's your house. If you're building a house, have strong foundations or it'll end up looking something like that. But we're told clearly in verse 4 that Luke has written his gospel so that we may have certainty. I don't know about you, but I don't want to live my life living for this God, serving this guy Jesus, coming to church every Sunday if there's nothing to this. If this isn't real, if I'm going to live a life that, that, that is for God, why would I do that if I wasn't certain that it was real? But I am certain that it is real. And this morning, each of us can have certainty in our God. We can have certainty in the birth and the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. Why? Because the Gospels and the entirety of Scripture is true. And they are a solid foundation. The first generation of the church didn't have Scriptures because they were filled with people who had experienced and knew Jesus personally. They had no need for books to tell them about him because they had their own memories. He was full in their minds and their hearts. They didn't pass on their knowledge in this kind of orderly narrative like the Gospels are presented to us. Eusebius, one of the early church historians, says that Peter used to adapt his instructions to the needs of the moment because it was so fresh, it was so real, it was so alive in their minds that there was this vivid recollection of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. But then we move into this next generation to which Luke belongs, and they're in a different position. 
In a sense, these people could say the words and the deeds of Jesus were accomplished among us that is written in verse 1 because it was in their story in their time. But this is information that is being delivered to them, to the next generation, from the generation before to the next in verse 2. These accounts are written to this generation and the facts have come to them. These are accounts that we find in the Bible and the Gospels of Jesus' saying of his life, of his miracles, of his resurrection and of other important matters. They were written because they would greatly benefit all the generations that were to come. And these men, the gospel writers, saw the value of having the facts about Jesus presented in this systematic narrative. In this story that puts the small stories together and makes this big overarching story. Luke addresses his gospel to this man, the excellent Theophilus. To be called the excellent, he's a nobleman. But he wanted to know more of the Christian faith. And I think that's my favorite, that's probably what makes Luke my favorite gospel, is because it's written to this bloke that wants to know more about faith. Why are they important? They're important because they were useful for Theophilus, and they're useful for us. Do you know, I imagine this man that's heard some of these stories about Jesus, and is just buzzing from them. He's thinking, I'm so desperate to know more of Jesus, I'm so desperate to know more of who this man is. The gospels that have been given to us are the foundation of the church. And the wonderful reality this morning is we can have certainty because we have hope in a God who is certain. Where is your certainty this morning? Is it in the things that you can see? Is it in the things that you are able to achieve? Is it in the things that you are able to do? What are the things that you rely on? And where do you find your certainty this morning? I want to give us three points from this passage. What is a gospel? What is the purpose of the gospels? And how do we respond to that message? We find in verse 1, a gospel is a narrative. Luke's gospel is made up of accounts about Jesus and they're put together in this connected form to make this single story about the life, the person, the times of Jesus. But we know, of course, John tells us in chapter 21 of his gospel that there are many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain enough books that they would be written. These accounts were never given to us as exhaustive, in-depth diaries of every single minute detail about Jesus' life. But rather, they are narratives. Each gospel reflects the style and the emphasis of their author. And Luke is very much the historian. He emphasizes on the historical details more than the other three do. Luke tells us that many people set about writing narratives about Jesus. Why wouldn't you? If you spent time with Jesus, if you knew Jesus, of course you would want to write about him. The wonderful thing, though, is that we don't just have four separate 
gospel narrative accounts. But over 1,500 years, we have a narrative from the beginning to the end of the Bible. At least 35 authors, this single narrative in every page of the book that points to Jesus. I love this sentence by Glenn Shivner. It just says, Christ is either patterned, promised, or present in every page of the Bible. Do you know from the flood to the ark, from the Passover to the Red Sea, from the wilderness to the promised lands, from the exile and the return, from war and peace, from kingdoms and kings, the prophets, the priests, the temples, the sacrifices, the rituals, the wisdom and death and life, the songs that lament, the songs that rejoice, the lives of the faithful that suffered as martyrs. Throughout the Old Testament, it is exceptionally Jesus-shaped. Throughout it, we find Jesus. And this book of Luke fits into that wider narrative of the Bible, that story of the Bible. We also see in verse 1 that a gospel is about the things that have been fulfilled, what things have been accomplished among us. Mathematically speaking, the odds of anybody fulfilling this amount of prophecy, the 300 odd prophecies that Jesus fulfilled are incredible. Did you know that the odds of one person fulfilling eight prophecies are 100 trillion to one? One person fulfilling 48 biblical prophecies are one in 10 to the power of 157. I don't even know what that number is, but it's huge. And one person fulfilling 300 of prophecies, that is only Jesus. And I love it that as we look to the Old Testament, we look to the Jesus that will come, that it marks this book as the inspired word of God. Because it is only a God that could see such things said so many years before and so many things, every one of them that would be accomplished in Christ. And it is the historical accuracy and the reliability of this book that sets it apart. Let's take a couple of examples. We looked at last week, Micah 5 verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you come forth for me, one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient of days. The book of Micah talks of the judgment of God that is going to fall on Samaria and Jerusalem due to their sin. But God will bring restoration. Or the passage of the suffering servant from Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase his government and to peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and furthermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 800 years before Jesus, these words are written. And even then, there is a sign to God's people of what is to come. So what has been accomplished among them? A lot. So much has been accomplished among God's people. So much 
has been fulfilled. So I ask you again, where is your certainty this morning? In verses 2 and 3, we read that the gospel is based on first-hand accounts that take real effort and research. People who knew Jesus from the beginning, listening to him, observing him carefully, were able to pass on their evidence of Christ. We aren't looking at information passed from generation to generation to generation, but we are looking at the first-hand accounts from the people who were there. I always had this idea when I was a kid that these biblical authors just kind of sat at a desk and God implanted them with this load of knowledge and they just sat and scribbled and wrote from start to finish. But of course, we know that's not true. We know that in reality, to create these books took effort. Luke is this historian, took time to investigate what was in front of him. Secondly, what is the purpose of a gospel? Verse 4. The purpose of these gospel writings are certainty. A gospel is written so that we may gain a grounded faith in God. Through the real life facts about Jesus, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. All of this was written with us in mind because it's written to this ordinary bloke called Theophilus. Their purpose, so that we might know Jesus. So that Theophilus may have certainty, and so that you and I may have certainty. I love this, but behind this translation of that you may have certainty, are the words that that give us this idea that you may know security, or safety, or the stability of what you have been taught. Luke uses these words in two other places. In Acts chapter 5, 23... That says we found the prison locked in all security. Or 1 Thessalonians 5.3. He uses it here that says while uh, people are saying there is peace and security. This word for us to have certainty in Christ means that we have a security in him. It is used 19 times in the Old Testament and we find it relates to the word Safety. So the idea in the Gospels, the idea that Luke is putting forward to us, is that we can have certainty. That we may be secure. That we may be unshakable. That we may be solid. That we may be stable. Because there is this immovable reality of the things that have gone before us. Is this what you want? Is the foundation of your life. Do you want this secure, unshakable, solid, stable, immovable reality that is presented to us? What is the purpose of the gospel? The purpose here is that we may have certainty and a strong faith. Because do you know what? Despite what the world will tell us, this is not a fairy tale. This is not some made up God. We don't blindly believe, but we believe in the living and working God. The God whose word perseveres. That stands the test of time. That stands the test of history. That stands the test of archaeology. It's great to have these things. It's great that they match up with the Bible, but we don't need them. 
Because first and foremost, we are certain in the word that is given to us. If we have this certainty, it means that we need not fear. It means that we need not fear trouble and persecution because the word of God and God himself are certain and this world is not. I'm aware that this is Advent, so I should probably look at, bring something Christmassy into this. And in the third point, I want to look at how should we respond to the gospel. And helpfully, we have the example of Elizabeth and Mary that follow that. But we know that because God and his word are certain, it does not mean that everybody will receive it. We know that many met Christ, still put him to death. We know that many, we just look around us, how many have grown up in church and been in church, but yet have still rejected him. But I think that there's a helpful difference for us to see between Zechariah's response to the good news and Mary's response. Gabriel was sent from God. And he brought this old and barren couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth, spectacular news. That they were going to have a son. Impossible. This long expected son. This Elijah-like forerunner to the Messiah that was going to come. But Zechariah didn't rejoice in this. He questioned, how shall I know that? Are you sure? Mm, I, don't, I don't know. Maybe, okay, but I'm not sure. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the days that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. When God gives his word to us, this is not the way that we receive it. May that never be us. May we be people that know certainty. That know the certainty that comes with God. And on the flip side to Zechariah, we come to Mary. The angel Gabriel sent from God to this virgin. And he comes in Luke chapter 1, reading from verse 27. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom there will know eh, there will be no end. And God knowing the heart. Mary's response of how shall I know this is not one of doubt. But how? How will this be? I am a virgin, verse 34. How, God, how are you going to use me? And I love this, but the angel answers our question and he says what is going to happen, that the Spirit will come and do these things. That you will see hope because nothing is impossible for God. Because your relative Elizabeth is six months pregnant. And Mary's response to the word that came to her was, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be according to to your word. Mary believed the word that came to her. And then she sang. She sang this song that's for Theophilus that is for us. She sang this song of faith. 
Starting in verse 48, I won't read it all, but it says, The Lord has looked on the humble estate of his servant. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their heart, and he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Mary's response to God working in her was be humble. Get down before the merciful God that is before you and know that this God is greater than you. Let nothing, let no office, let no power, let no wealth, make no pleasure. Make this too difficult to understand that there is one way to God. There are one way to God and that way is Christ Jesus. It is not the way of wealth. It is not the way of power. It is not the way of doubt. But it is the way of faith. God has acted. But the glory of this is that our God is still alive. That our God is still at work. And our God is still acting. God has spoken yet God continues to speak. Trust in the God that speaks. Luke 18, 13, we read those words, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That is what our words and response to God should be. God, be merciful to me, for you are great, and I am not, but God, use me. We are presented throughout Scripture with the way of salvation that is only in Christ. How do you respond to it? Do you respond like Mary with a heart that is full of faithful obedience? And does it lead you to a place of joy? I love these words of verses 46 and 47. My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Does it? This morning, does your soul magnify the Lord? Does your soul know what it is to follow Jesus? Does your soul know what it is? To hold the God that is awesome and mighty yet humbled himself to the point of both as a baby forfeiting everything that was his, his divine right in heaven to come into this world so that you may know him. How can our souls not magnify him when that is the reality that we are faced with? Does your spirit rejoice in your saviour? Does your spirit say, actually, do you know what? Things around me are rubbish. Circumstances around me, the things I face right now might be awful. But are you able not even to stand before God, but on your knees before God and say, God, do you know what? May my soul magnify you. May I rejoice in you. Lord, I can't, I struggle to see why I should, but I do because I know that you are God. That you are certain and I am not. Do you have the Holy Spirit? The great mark of being a follower of Christ is the joy that the Spirit brings. And a great mark of that joy is a heart that magnifies. 
the Lord. Those words again. My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. Know this, Theophilus. Know this, you and I, that this word is being given to. That you know this certainty. That you know this rock solid, unshakable reality. That God is the great actor and that God is the great goal of the whole story of scripture. That God is the beginning, that he has planned all things. That he's in the middle with us just now in all our mess governing all things. And at the end he will be magnified above all things by all creation. That is the God that came into this world. That is the Christ that humbled himself to the birth that we could never comprehend. That is the God-man. That is the divine Son of God. And salvation is his glorious work and his offer to each and every one of us that would believe. How certain are you in yourself? How self-sufficient are you? Each one of us needs to get on our knees before our God and confess that there is no certainty in ourselves. The only certainty we can know is that that is in Christ. Do you know the biggest difference? We see this truth in Scripture. We see it in our society. We see it across the world where the church is growing. That the biggest divide between the rich and the poor is dependency. We in our culture are so self-dependent. I can provide everything I need. I've got it all. I'm certain in myself. But do you know what? The reality of this gospel is that nothing you do, nothing you can accomplish, nothing that you will say, nothing that you can do in your own strength will bring you eternal life. Nothing that you can do in yourself will bring you the joy and peace that only God can bring. And only faith in the unchangeable and certain one has the ability to save you. And throughout scripture we see this reality that the poor know their insufficiency. They know their desperate, desperate need of a saviour. And I urge you, as we gather around this table this morning, as we gather to contemplate the death of our Lord Jesus, humble yourself this morning before the King of kings and the Lord of lords, because we are not worthy to sit around this table, but we sit here because he has justified us purely through his grace, Because he is good. Not one of us deserves to come into this place. Not one of us deserves to call ourselves the people of God. But God in all his glory clothes us in his righteousness. We are frail. None of us on this earth are eternal. We will perish. But God will never perish. God is certain. My encouragement and my challenge to us this morning as Luke writes for us that we may have certainty in the world. This morning be certain in Christ. Don't be certain in yourself. Depend like Mary depended. Fall on your face before God in worship and adoration because he deserves it. Because he is great. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, would our souls magnify you? 
where our spirits rejoice in you. We thank you for these faithful writings that we have, that we can read of the wonders of Christ, that we can read of the wonders of how he fits into the history of this world. And God, as we consider this Christmas with everything stripped away that a baby came in those most humble of beginnings, that would live a life that was not lavish, that would live a life of a persecuted man as a criminal that hung on that cross so that we may enter into relationship with you. Lord, would our response to you this Christmas just be one of utter adoration. God, would we acknowledge and know your worth would that drive us to our knees? And Lord, would you continue to work in us because you are good and you are glorious. Lord, we thank you. Amen.